our culture right now is very obsessed and fascinated by new, as if new always equals better or new always equals, um, you know, progress. But I think artists are interested in the new for a different reason. I think it's because the new has just enough element of chaos that our skills are very useful. Hello, and welcome to Art Restart, where we explore how artists are reinventing their fields and building a new landscape for the arts. I'm Pierre Carlo Talenti, the producer and editor of this podcast, brought to you by the Thomas S. Keenan Institute for the Arts at the University of North Carolina School of the Arts. In this episode, we'll be spending time with Amelia Winger Bearskin. Amelia is an artist, a technologist, a researcher who specializes in working in and with artificial intelligence. She lives in Jacksonville, Florida, where she is Associate Professor of Artificial Intelligence and the Arts at the University of Florida. Her work, though it's incredibly varied, always focuses on finding ways to use AI to benefit communities and the environment. In 2017, for example, she founded a nonprofit, Idea New Rochelle, that created a VR and AR citizen toolkit to engage the community as co designers of their future city. The project, in partnership with the New Rochelle Mayor's Office, won a highly competitive million dollar Bloomberg Mayor's Challenge grant. Amelia is Seneca Cayuga Nation of Oklahoma, Deer Clan part of the Haudenosaunee Confederation. And through much of her work, she strives to imbue new technology with the values of her native culture. In 2019, she created Wampum.codes. Wampum.codes is both an ethical framework for software development based on indigenous values of co-creation, and it's also an award-winning podcast of the same name. In the podcast, Amelia interviews indigenous artists and technologists about how they manifest their native culture's values in their work. Amelia spoke to me from her home in Jacksonville. Given the intricacy and variety of her work, I started the interview with a question I usually keep for the end. I asked her to describe a current project she was particularly jazzed about. Well, I'm excited about a couple projects. Usually they happen as they're coming towards me, like as if I'm driving down a road that is life and whichever one's right in front of me is the one I'm most excited about. And then the next one that's right in front of me, I'm most excited about. But so the the one that is actually right in front of me is I'm working with Nancy Baker Carhill for a project that we're doing in Los Angeles as part of the Freeze Art Fair. And she's making really beautiful elemental animations, 3D environments, uh, virtual reality, augmented reality systems that are talking about climate justice and climate change. And I am doing the immersive sound. And it's really fun to collaborate. I just love to collaborate with friends. And so whenever I get to do it, it's such a gift. And she sent me a proof last night of the animation. It was stunning. And just to hear like my voice moving through that environment was really fun. So um, that's probably the thing I'm most excited about because it's happening really soon. <laughs> so were I able to attend, what would I experience? Well, you know, and I haven't seen the the final layout in the gallery, but there will be, you know, projections, objects in AR. The work that she does is primarily in AR, although she does work in VR. And so you'd be able to see these sort of pulsating um, waveforms that are in different elements. So the first one I saw was fire. And it looked like almost like an ocean of fire, if that makes sense, kind of bobbing up and down. And then I have recorded these soundscapes that she's then placing like stems throughout the um, 
experience. And then they kind of bloom as you move closer to them or move farther away. And they're me singing and me playing music. And it gives you kind of a, a grounded sense of the body while you're exploring some of these environments that, you know, since she's doing it in California, she's really thinking about the fires and about issues that have been happening in the coastline and with the shore. And so there's a lot of water and fire and fire water and water, fire and all of that kind of mixture of spaces, you know, and we wanted to kind of raise awareness. We're, we're also raising funds for with my my own podcast, Wampump.codes, I like to support my guests who are making positive impact in their community uh, using new technologies, which is all of them, you know, so I'm trying to kind of work my way through and, and raise different funds so that I can support projects from the guests that have been on my podcast, because I like to stay in touch with them and kind of sync every year and see where their projects have gone and continue to support not just by amplifying their message, but also um, through material support if possible. So that is what I'm trying to do right now. So were your artistry and your and technology always intertwined or did one come before the other? You know, they are always have actually been entwined. When I was a child, my father worked at Kodak and he was the head of their innovation lab where they invented the first digital camera. And my mother was a storyteller in our tribe. And it being a storyteller is something like being a politician, historian, educator, writer, performer, and usually musician, although my mom's not a musician. So from a young age, she would have me play the flute and the drum and sing the songs that were part of our stories because she's like, I don't like doing any of those things. So I did that <laughs> as a child. And so I was, I was performing with her and learning what was the bedrock of storytelling, why it was important to a culture, why it was important to share with new generations, the wisdom of ancestral knowledge. And then also, my father would bring home any kind of outdated anything from his lab that they didn't use or they were throwing out. And it would be like a screen here, or a laptop there, or a digital camera or, you know, so I had like ridiculously high tech toys for like a five and six year old because he'd be like here. And he, you know, I had a really strong desire to code and to play around with these objects for art's sake. And my dad was like, you know, if you want to be an artist, these are the tools of the future. Like, you're not going to be drawing with a paper and pen. He got me a Koala pad and a Commodore 64. And like, this is how you're going to be designing and the future will be participatory and immersive. And he kind of was a, a visionary in in optics research and the way it would connect with computers. And so he, he could see how excited I was about art and was like, this is an art tool. This computer is a, a notebook for drawing, right? <laughs> and so I took I took him at that at his word, and I connected, you know, both with the artistic practice of my mother as a storyteller and performer, and then the technological like sort of framework that my dad had, whereas he thought of all of these new technologies very much as someone who was building them, right? He wasn't just using them; he was like innovating the future, but also he thought of them as creative tools and toys, not just you know like something you would crunch numbers on, right? Was there a point when you had an aha moment of, because uh, you ha your work is shaped by a very strong mission, I think. Was there a point when you're an aha moment where like you knew that technology was going to help you achieve what you wanted to achieve? I mean, I get, <laughs> that's a tough question. I think there's lots of different types of aha moments, right? Like, I think I believed my dad in some ways and then resisted it in others because I was like, well, I really was so drawn to art. And at that time, there weren't artists that I saw reflected in my community or in like the teachers that I was taking art classes from that use technology. What kind of art were you making then? Well, I became an opera singer when I was 15 oh. and I studied at the Eastman Conservatory under Seth and Jane McCoy. And they, you know, they're very traditional opera singers, both of them. My world began to really open up from opera and I began to tour the world and be in different, you know, opera productions. And I thought, 
you know, I was always still connecting with people on computers, but I thought that was like a hobby, right? Like the opera was the profession and the computers were the hobby, (laughs) which maybe has flipped a little bit over the years. And as I began to explore more in the area of opera, I would I would meet people who are doing new technology for live performance. And they would, you know, say, oh, I'd love to cast you in this opera I, I met, I auditioned for. Like, I, I used to always star as Despina in Cosa Fantute because I was a lyrical soprano in Coloratura. And so I was playing this role again. It's kind of one of those things in opera where you play the same role a lot of times. <laughs> you know, you're like, oh, you're known as that thing. Okay, you get cast to that thing. Like, And I, I saw that my whole life I might actually be these like couple of handful of comedic Mozart roles because that's what my voice was. That's the way maybe I looked or things like that. And a little bit of typecasting that you kind of look out. And I was 15 when I started. I was very young. And so I looked out at the future and I thought, okay, I could be Despina, like, you know, Maybe I could become the best one of my generation, but I would still play the same like role. And I'm very creative person. I'm like for sure born with the soul of an artist. And I would experiment, kind of look for other things that I could do. And I, as, while I was playing Despina, I auditioned for another opera in in DC, which was with a group called the Digital Poetry Theater. And they did a lot of like what now we would call projection mapping. Although at that time it was like glass slides on robotic arms because there was no, there wasn't the computation strong enough to like project this stuff in real time because graphics even for video games were so rudimentary. But with um, like glass slides and robotic arms, you could almost like fake high definition rendering of animation animation in real time. <laughs> and so I joined this group and I started in one of their plays and, you know, they would be kind of like doing this and that with the robotics. And I would say, actually, I, I can help you fix these robotics. I can help you with the coding. I can do the Photoshop. I get like, I started doing more of the back end because they would say, oh, well, this student that was going to do that didn't do that. And if we need to make this change, and I was like, well, I can do all this. Like I, I know how to code and I can make this stuff. And so I started doing the back end as well as performing on stage. And then I was doing more composing and composing algorithmically and using, you know, digital technologies to do more of the the music. And then I, so I finally found myself like directing, starring, writing, composing, all of these <laughs> things with technology for this opera company. And I was just supposed to be the talent, right? Like I'm just supposed to wear the wow, costume and stand on stage. Coloratura with tech chops. Right, right. That doesn't happen like, every day, It was like day, a right? weird... <laughs> Well, at the, back then, it was even weirder, I guess. But And then, you know, I wanted to start doing my own things. Like, I was like, oh, okay, I've had this experience doing that whole pipeline of director, actor, performer, tech. Maybe I can do some one-woman shows here. And I started doing them and, and got, you know, success at, like, the Lincoln Center and the Kennedy Center, these places that would show new forms of opera. And then after, I, you know, those kind of new forms of opera festivals happen, like, once every five years or something. So in between the five years, I was like, what am I going to do? And museums would come to me and say, hey, that thing you did at that festival, would you do it at this museum? And I was like, sure. And before I knew it, people started saying, oh, you're a performance artist. And I was like, huh. Okay. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Right. Sure. And so I would, I had a career as a performance artist doing these kind of interactive media technology at live performance and became a professor of performance art. And I, I always like to say I've been doing the same thing for my whole career, which is just this combination of art and technology and storytelling. And it's come by different, many different names. You know, people have said, I am a, net artist or a interactive artist or a VR director or a performance artist or all these different names. And I'm always like, okay, or transmedia art, all the, all the different sort of titles that come. And I'm like, I actually am not doing that much different things now than I did when I was 15. I am still, you know, I'm still making things and showing them to whatever audience is excited by them. Right, You, you just have even more tools in your toolbox yeah, now, I presume. Yeah. 
Yeah. And AI is um, the natural progression of what happens when our GPUs are faster and our graphic cards are faster. And suddenly we can have these deeper collaborations with machines, whereas before um, we needed to do a lot of that, like pre-processing or pre-chopping up uh, systems before. And now we can do so much in real time, which is just uh, amazing. Now, as a professor of AI in the arts, what do you impart to your student artists of all stripes about how they might think of engaging with AI, even if they don't yet know how it might interweave with their art? I think it's very important to teach them a little bit of, you know, right now I'm, I'm teaching them P5.js, which is a great coding, creative coding language based on processing. In, and it has an IDE in the browser so that they can begin to start learning the building blocks of how do I do this? And the most important thing is to learn why do I do this, right? And and I think it, t- but it takes time, right? In the beginning, you're like, okay, great, I can make an animation or I can make a face or I can do a filter on a webcam. But I don't know. I've seen lots of things that can do this before. What happens when I am able to create it? And I think it's super important for me to show them what other artists have done historically with computation and how we are collaborating with machines and how machines can help us collaborate with human and non-human systems, not just machine systems, but environmental systems. Or we really can think of the data that is inherent in different science fields and incorporate that in different ways rather than just being interpretive. We actually can have it maybe representational or maybe have our audience engage directly with that data or understand how data is manipulated or used to form a story almost without our consent in a lot of ways. So a lot of times as an artist, you're like demystifying that technology to say, hey, this has an angle. It's not neutral, right? And so I think it's very important for my students to know how to do it so that that becomes demystified, why they should do it, and what is at stake, right? Like, how are these systems being used and why are there all of these assumptions? I think there is a lot of assumptions around AI being neutral, being true, being more true than opinions, being more distanced from the petty uh, arguments of mortals or whatnot, when in fact, it's totally biased. and It has you know, an immense amount of um, problems. And it's leaving out enormous amounts of very vital data in our planet, in a lot of these systems. And in, in many ways, it's consolidating power and consolidating avenues of harm for certain communities, and for things like our planet, right? So I think that's really important. And if you don't know how something works, or how to enact change in it, like as in I don't know how to code a database or or pull that information so that I can manipulate it. It's very hard to see how other people are doing it, right? And I think I see that a lot. And sometimes I let my students debate things, which is like always a bad idea. But you know, sometimes I let them debate ideas and and things in class, and I see how easy it is for these kind of assumptions about the world that they've never criticized immediately come into play how they talk about and define technology. And it it takes a lot of effort to kind of pull that back and be like, why do you think it works that way? Because I can't actually teach you how it works unless we maybe pull back the bias of why you think it works that way because it doesn't work that way, but you think it does, right? And there's certain groups um, who are in power who love that you think that. They love that you think it's really neutral or that it's just the facts, ma'am, or all those kind of things. But it doesn't work that way. It's actually very biased and it's created by humans and it is a container and a reflection of our beliefs and our values, good and bad. And, you know, I think we have to kind of dethrone and destabilize the notion that tech is more true than any other opinion or more um, so powerful that it can't be stopped or rolled back or like a Pandora's box that can't be put back together again. Otherwise, we just are 
going to be consumers of it, right? You you yourself are passionate about ensuring that a code of values is woven into the creation of technologies, which I just love that idea because I sometimes feel like such a victim and so powerless. But technology and technologists currently sit at the top of the capitalist food chain right now and where right where they're mining us for all the data we're literally worth. So it seems like a very difficult task to encode values in new technology. So can you talk about what role you think artists in particular can and should play in the development of technologies to achieve that goal? That's such a wonderful question. Thank you, Pierre. Um, As you know, I'm very passionate about this subject and I think about this a lot, right? Because, you know, I, I don't have the same kind of power as the richest man in the world has or the richest, you know, 17 people in the world have in order to enact an incredible radical change, right? But at the same time, I'm very confused as to why the richest man in the world or the richest 17 people who who it historically have held now hold a more a higher consolidation of power and wealth than has ever been seen in human history, right? Like this is incredible. Like this 001% has more money, more consolidation, more power than we've ever seen in human history. And thanks, thanks in large part to technology. Yes, absolutely. Of course, course, absolutely. So that's interesting, right? And then looking at those people, I'm shocked at their lack of imagination. They have more power than anyone's ever had, right? And yet they don't believe that they can end world hunger. They don't believe that they could end bias. They don't believe they could end war. Why don't they believe that or have publicly committed to it? I mean, we see a lot of like Twitter conversations back and forth where people kind of are like goading them into this and they they respond by like, I don't believe that this is possible, right? And I'm like, how has their imagination grown so small? Like if the people who actually are the only ones on the planet that have the power to do the biggest amount of change can't even imagine a world in which they are the ones that could change the world, then I think my job as an artist is to help all of our collective imaginations become bigger and to think of a world and imagine a world, prototype a world, dream of a world, storytell about this world, make music about this world, pull the hearts of people towards a center where we believe that not that the world could be a better place, that we believe that the world is a beautiful place and a place that that's deeply deserving of our honor and our protection and our love and our joy can can pull us to a realization that we are not just the sum of our dollars that we make in our lifetime or the data or the ads that we click on or right like it, all of that can be destabilized by the 99% we can say yeah i don't buy this paradigm anymore And maybe we could help that tiny group of people that are in control have a bigger imagination as well because they could see it through our eyes because humans at the end of the day are very social and we're very deeply connected to one another in so many levels, scientific levels and spiritual and, and ideological. And it's the imagination is not coming from them. We are not seeing them bring about a more beautiful and a more just world. And so you're thinking that that artists with their imaginations are a key part of this potential transformation. Absolutely. It's it's our responsibility to take the knowledge of the generations of our ancestors and to continue this message of like we see the world in cycles, we see the world moving in in turns and in time and we're able to prototype these ideas. And and oftentimes um we've seen artists meet technology right at the beginning as prototypers because we like to see that sort of crack in rules and look at something new. 
our culture right now is very obsessed and fascinated by new as if new always equals better or new always equals um, you know progress. But I think artists are interested in the new for a different reason. I think it's because the new has just enough element of chaos that our skills are very useful. We have very useful skills of being able to say, okay, there's something that's chaotic. I can tell you a story about this and it will make sense. It'll make sense in the timeline that we like to hear stories or like to experience information. So I don't have a lot of skills to do everything, right? I don't, I have like a very particular skill set. And so I have to work with my skill set. My skill set is I can take a moment of chaos and I can explain it to a very broad group of people in a way that makes their heart sing and gives them energy to continue to explore this, right? But I, I can't do a lot of other things, right? <laughs> like there are a lot of things that are very important for building a world that is, uh, safe, just, and protects our planet. And I'm not good at all of those skills, but I do have these particular skills and I have to figure out how I can be of value to the community that I care about. One of the many projects in which you're involved is nofunding.com, a project that asks, I'm going to quote here, <laughs> what would happen if artists were liberated from money and the self-censorship imposed by its pursuit? Uh, can you talk a little bit how how the project works and what you've learned so far? Oh, thank you for that if question. You have, if you have any answers to the question that the project poses. Yeah. Well, you know, anyone can join. It's no-funding.com. Or if you're on my website, you can go and there's just it's just a Google form. You, you fill it out and then I invite you to a weekly Zoom conversation. And all of the topics that we talk about are generated by the people who are present. The impetus is really during the pandemic. I personally am not able to go to so many forums and talk with so many people about what is going on in in the world. And I'm unfortunately reliant more and more on media, centralized media to tell me what's happening. And that that makes me feel very disconnected and very un, like very a lack of hope. Right. And so no funding for me was really a way of saying what is actually going on where you are and what things can we try out that could support each other as artists. I, I mean, I think all of us are very tired of clamoring for these tiny, you know, a grant that could be like one out of 900 or 9,000 or sometimes 900. Right. And which, and which takes five days to of complete. Of course. Right. And all of us are right. worn out and we're starting to realize that we are really, I mean, at least I realized I didn't become an artist so that I could apply for grants and do better than my friend. I actually became an artist because I, I love working with other artists. And I was joining a lot of arts groups on Zoom, you know, because it's a pandemic. And all of them were formed around how can we give you funds? This is how you apply to this emergency COVID grant, or this is how you apply to that emergency COVID grant. And so all of us were spending all of our time only talking about how to get funds and then applying and then not getting it, right? Like so many, you know, there's too many of us to, that need it to get it. And I thought, what if we just stopped and we talked to each other and said, what do you need? What do we need? How do we just direct action this and just directly help one another? How do we make our own mutual aid network? We know how to use technology. Can we use this? You know, I'm, I'm very fascinated by DAOs. I, I love them and I respect them. I also think there are ways in which we just radically need to rethink orgs. The nonprofit system is broken. Obviously, if, so, if I were a millionaire and I gave $4 million to a nonprofit to help artists, I know that it would probably filter down to two artists who would get an incredibly tiny amount of that, right? And so these these systems are like, you know, I don't want to support that anymore. I want to try to think of what what's next. How can we actually help each other? And, you know, can we just pool resources and then vote on who uses this? And we're very inspired and no funding by all of the movements that have preceded us, whether it's, you know, Black Mountain College or if it's um, different artist collectives or 
artist-run galleries or spaces? Like, what does that mean in a world where we're all separated all over the world and we don't maybe have physical spaces anymore? How do we kind of continue that legacy into these new spaces? Okay, I'm going to steal my last question from you. It's when you often ask your guests on wampum.codes. What's made you laugh really hard recently? Oh, that's a great question. Well, um, it's yours. You know, my my son is um, a millennial. He's 20 years old, and he he forces me. He can tell whenever I'm stressed out, and he just forces me to watch meme comps with him, and we just watch memes and laugh hysterically. And <laughs> luckily, I get a dose of that every day. So when I'm not laughing at one of my two incredibly derpy dogs. I'm definitely laughing at memes. And I have to say, you know, this generation of my son, they're, you know, they're 20, I guess they're like probably like 15 to 25 right now. They are hilarious. Their sense of humor is so meta. It's so deep. I'm so glad that we have a generation that is funny. Oh my God, we needed that. If you'd like to learn more about Amelia and read a longer version of our interview, please head to uncsa.edu slash art restart. Do you especially admire any artist changemakers you'd love us to feature in an art restart episode? If so, I would love to hear your ideas. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at PC Talenti. And don't forget to subscribe or follow the podcast if you haven't already. Our theme music is by Shanghai Restoration Project. I'm Piercarlo Talenti, and on behalf of the Keenan Institute for the Arts, thanks so much for listening. <laughs>